A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, from time to time, uh, between now and uh, convention for lads to leaders, that I want to uh, preach some lessons out of Joshua, uh, about you know one or two a month. And so we're going to be back in the book of Joshua this evening, Joshua chapter 2 uh, in particular. And again, uh, just hoping to uh, get a better uh, feel for this book. As we know, the, the Bible Bowl is based on Joshua, and so... Uh, hopefully, as parents, you know, we're learning right along with our children as uh, we, we study this uh, great book. Uh, but one, one person once said that, you know, nature forms us, sin deforms us, you know, prisons try to reform us, education tries to inform us. But the power of Christ is really what transforms us. You know, a few months ago, I gave a, a sermon uh, and I, was, I talked about this man by the name of Clyde Thompson. You know, maybe you remember this, maybe not, but uh, he was nicknamed the meanest man in Texas. And uh, at a young age, he was involved in some uh, murders, which put him into prison. And while he was in prison, he heard some gospel preaching over the radio and he requested the, the preacher to come in and baptize him. And he became a believer uh, right about a week before uh, he was set to be executed. And if remember in that story, uh, he ended up not being executed. Uh, but then uh, while he was in prison, he sort of slipped uh, back into his old life. And the, he committed some more murders while he was in prison. But eventually, he got placed into solitary confinement. And while he was there, he started studying the Bible. And again, if you remember this account, uh, he wasn't studying it to learn about uh, Christ, but he was learning it to try to disprove it because he was just so angry uh, at the world at that time. But again, when he was uh, studying the scriptures, he came to the conclusion that these were real and that, and that uh, he needed to transform his life back into uh, what he uh, should have been uh, when he uh, was originally baptized. And if you remember, again, he became uh, faithful again to the Lord. His demeanor changed, his nature changed, and he was released from prison and actually became a prison minister and helped countless individuals over time. You know, maybe you're familiar with the name Jeffrey Dahmer. Is that a name that you're familiar with in the, the late 70s, and especially in the 80s and early 90s? He was a notorious serial killer. Uh, not only that, but a pedophile, cannibal, uh, but a preacher by the name of Roy Ratcliffe baptized him in 1994. He was in prison in Wisconsin, and Ratliff uh, had conversed with him through mail, eventually got an opportunity to preach to him in a prison ministry. And because of that, uh, he was baptized in 1994. Now, eight months later, uh, he was unfortunately killed in prison, but uh, Jeffrey Dahmer became a New Testament Christian. Again, someone from this, this past that unlikely uh, a convert uh, became a New Testament Christian. Well, of course, in Scripture, you know, we see this again over and over again. Of course, Saul of Tarsus. Remember in Acts chapter 7, uh, there's this man, Stephen, who, who's preaching this great uh, sermon to the Jews all about the history of uh, the Jewish people. And uh, because of this sermon that he you know, lays out to them, basically saying, you know, your fathers did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And the people were extremely upset, extremely angry. And we know the Bible tells us that they took off their robes. They laid them at the feet of this man by the name of Saul and they stoned Stephen to death. Now, they laid the, the, their robes at the, at the feet of Saul, possibly because he was in charge, because he was in charge of the execution. Uh, they were showing their submission to him. 
But in Acts chapter 8, in the very next chapter, we're told that Saul begins this great persecution against the church. And he's going into people's homes and taking them, dragging them to prison, beating them, having some others of them killed. Again, a man who is an unlikely convert. But of course, we know by Acts chapter 9, on his way to Damascus, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He becomes blind and he asks what he must do. And he's told to go to see this man, Ananias, and he'll tell him what he was doing. And remember, Ananias tells him to arise and be baptized. And he becomes eventually a Paul, the Apostle Paul. Well, if you read the, the, uh, the letters that Paul wrote, we know that he's not, he doesn't always hold back on his past. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he refers to himself in his previous life as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, as a violent aggressor or insolent man. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, what God told Ananias was that this man, Saul, was a chosen instrument of him and that he was going to bear his name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. He said God had a plan for him, again, a very unlikely convert. Uh, but then we get to Joshua chapter 2. And again, uh, another individual, as we read uh, this chapter, we come in contact with someone who we would think as an unlikely convert. We meet uh, this woman by the name of Rahab the harlot. And of course, the theme of the book of Joshua that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is about conquering. It's about this conquest, about being courageous. And the Israelites fulfilling the commandment to occupy the promised land and drive out all of those idolatrous pagans in the land. And of course, another uh, theme of that book was in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, where Joshua uh, tells the people, you know, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether it's the gods who are beyond the river or, or our God, choose for yourselves today, he says. Notice he says, uh, he says but as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. But yet again, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, chapter 2, we have this woman, a non-Israelite, but she's doing exactly what Joshua challenges the Israelites to do. She chooses, along with her house, to serve the Lord. And in every way, again, she's an unlikely convert. You know, her profession is immoral, of course, a uh, harlotry. You know, that's not a word that we use in today's language, but what it, 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 prostitution. That's what her uh, profession was. And we also remember Rahab for the, the lying and the deception she does in this chapter to uh, hide the, the spies. And we're not necessarily going to talk about that in depth uh, this evening, but uh, the New Testament writers, they use her example three times. Three times in the New Testament, Rahab is shown, uh, shows up in the New Testament, and those are the verses that we're going to focus on this evening. Uh, we're going to see that she saw the evidence and that she uh, accepted it by faith, and God blessed her. So what we want to do first is refresh ourselves with the story of Rahab, and then we're going to notice how the New Testament writers chose to remember her. Again, in Joshua chapter 1, remember, uh, God is charging Joshua that you are now commander of my people. You know, Moses is dead at this point. Joshua is going to take over and he charges him, be strong and courageous. He tells them that over and over again in that chapter. And then Joshua in chapter 2, he sends out two spies, two spies into the land, uh, specifically into Jericho. And they go and they lodge at Rahab's 
home. Well, why did they choose her home? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but uh, we do know that um, those were the hotels of the day. Uh, uh, the hotels uh, are not like uh, what we uh, imagine hotels to be, but those who practice, again, harlotry, uh, they, would, they would have been at the hotels of the day. And so the spies go and they go and stay there. But also a second reason why is because her home was on the wall, as we read in Joshua chapter 2. This was an advan- advantage for them because if they were to be in any trouble, they could just jump out of the wall and run as far as they could. They weren't in the center of town uh, where it'd be much harder to escape. And so this was an advantage or an advantageous place to be. But we remember that the king of Jericho catches wind that these spies are in the land. And so he uh, requests Rahab to give them up. And she, again, she admits that they had come to her, but that now they were gone. But of course, this was that deception, that lie that we uh, noticed a little while ago. She hid them on her roof. Well, Rahab then, uh, when the, the, the king's men leave, she, she goes up and talks to those two spies and she says, uh, her, she's showing the faith that she has in these individuals saying, I know the Lord has given you the land and we are terrified. Everyone in uh, Jericho in this land is terrified. You know, we heard uh, 40 some years ago when your God dried up the Red Sea and helped you escape from Egypt. We, we heard how you and your army uh, just a, you know, a few months ago utterly destroyed the King Sihon and King Og, uh, these, these kings of the Amorite people. And because I have hid you and kept you safe, she says, deal kindly with me, deal kindly with my household and make us a promise to spare our lives. And of course, they agreed to do that. But then they set the conditions of, of, their, of her salvation. You know, she lets them down in this rope uh, through the window of the city wall. And she goes and tells them to go and hide out into the hill country for about three days. And after those three days, you, you'll be safe to return back to your people. And the spies say, well, uh, bef- uh, when we come back, when we're going to come back, we want you to tie this, this scarlet cord in your window. And this is going to let everyone know that we are not going to attack this household. We are not going to utterly destroy these individuals, harm anyone in this home. This is what you have to do to be safe, to have salvation from this battle. And of course, in Joshua chapter 6, when we get there later, that's exactly what happens. She puts that red cord in the window, and they are the only ones who escape that destruction that the Israelite people had. So what about the New Testament writers? How did the New Testament writers choose for us to remember this woman, uh, Rahab? And so we're going to notice that here uh, as, as we look at some of these in Matthew chapter 1. This is the first time that she is going to be mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Again, think about this woman, um, Rahab the harlot. Again, she, she was a prostitute, a pagan, and, a, and the depravity of sin. She was headed for certain destruction. You know, again, the, the Israelite army was marching or was going to go and overtake the land. Her situation was desperate. Yet before the story is complete, this woman will no longer be that harlot, but a happily married woman to an Israelite in the line of Jesus Christ. She became an ancestor of David, a great-great-grandmother, in fact, the, the king of Israel, uh, and a forerunner to Jesus Christ. And so when one reads the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew, we read of the name of this woman, Rahab. You know, uh, 
There are two genealogies found in the New Testament of Jesus Christ. The first one is in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 3. And he's giving us the biological ancestry through Mary. But here in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is giving us the legal ancestry through Joseph. Of course, genealogies in the Bible, they are extremely important. You know, if you've been studying along in Nehemiah uh, that we've been doing on Wednesday evenings, you know that there are a lot of genealogies included in that book. Uh, You know, we don't put as much emphasis on genealogies in our culture as they do. And sometimes maybe when we get to those places in Scripture, our eyes tend to glaze over of these names after names after names. But they are important to the Jewish nation. They're also important for us to understand that the Bible does not begin once upon a time, right? This is historical facts for us to know, and it was important for them to know, uh, for instance, which tribe they were from. You know, you wanted to know uh, that because uh, your land inheritance was based on that. Uh, Historical information from uh, your tribe was based on that. You wanted to know whether you were eligible to, to serve in the priesthood or not, if you were a Levite. And of course, there was many messianic prophecies uh, in the Old Testament based on these tribal uh, um, lineages. Uh, We know that in Genesis chapter 49, for instance, in verse 10, it tells us that the scepter would never leave uh, Judah, uh, referring to uh, the messianic line of Jesus Christ was going to come uh, through the tribe of Judah. And of course, Jesus was. And so Matthew, um, you know, as he's writing, you know, we, we can look at the, the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all have their different uh, perspectives. Matthew is writing to the Jewish nation. You know, he wants the Jews to understand who Jesus is. Mark, he's writing to the Romans. Luke, he's writing to the Gentiles. And John really is uh, Neapolitan. He's writing to everyone, to all individuals. But again, Matthew, he wants to prove to the Jewish readers that Jesus has the correct pedigree. Because that's the first question a man in the Jewish nation is going to ask. If someone's claiming to be the Messiah, you know, who is this man related to? Is he related to those of David and those of Abraham? And of course, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 1, we notice that's who Matthew begins that with. He says, Uh, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham and David would have been the two biggest names within the lineage of Jesus. Uh, If you're related to those individuals, uh, that's what they want to know. And again, it begins with Abraham and he goes all the way through Joseph. And as we read this genealogy, some rather rather odd things stand out to us when we're reading through it. You know, there's going to be a couple of uh, Gentiles uh, named throughout it. And there's going to be some black sheep in the the family of the Israelites. Uh, Gentiles, of course, uh, the Jews considered unclean. You know, this would have been almost an embarrassment for them to uh, have uh, Gentile individuals uh, mentioned within the lineage, the genealogy of their Messiah. But there were Canaanites within here. Uh, Rahab, in particular, was a Canaanite. Uh, And there were Moabites. Ruth uh, was a a Moabite. And the king uh, Manasseh, um, one of the most wicked kings of Israel, he's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. But there's also uh, within uh, this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is also the names of women. And again, usually uh, genealogies were male-dominated. And so this is a little uh, different in particular, you know, because it's usually the son of so-and-so who's the son of so-and-so who's the son of so-and-so. But when you read uh, Matthew's genealogy, you come across Tamar, who in Genesis 38 has a pretty sketchy past. 
You come across Ruth in verse 5, Rahab in verse 5, Bathsheba in verse 6. But notice verse 5 here, and it's up on the board as well. But we read here that the Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. This man, this Israelite man by the name of Salmon, was, the, was married to Rahab, and they had a child by the name of Boaz. Yeah, of course, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed uh, begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So here we have David's great-great-grandmother, Rahab the harlot. You know, why would Matthew use these individuals in the family tree of the Christ? Again, the, the Jews would know who Rahab was. Uh, uh, with their study of the scriptures all the way back in Joshua 2. They would have known who she was and what her profession and past was. But this is the family God chose to bring Jesus into the world. Again, Rahab reminds us that God's family is on a level ground. See, our past no longer matters uh, today. When, when one becomes a member of the church, you know, we were at once, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us, we were at once all dead to sin. But by verse 5, he tells us, but by grace, through faith, we have been saved and we are made alive through our, our baptism in the Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says we are now fellow citizens in God's family. We're all on level ground. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 and 29, Paul there says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed yourselves with Christ. And they says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Well, Rahab also uh, lets us know by being in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that not only are we all on level ground now, but also she reminds us that it's never too late to be part of Christ's family tree. See, whatever the worst sin you can think of, God can forgive you. He can forgive you. God, had, or excuse me, Rahab had to make a choice all the way back in Joshua chapter 2. And she saw the evidence. She saw that, that the people were, were melting uh, in, in, their, um, in their country, hearing about the, these Israelites' people. And she was convicted. She was convicted that, that God was who he said he was. And this transformed her life. Right? It transformed her life. It's never too late to be part of God's family tree. We, we remember the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. You know, Paul was writing uh, about them, and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You notice what Paul is saying there. He's listing some pretty heinous sins. And he says that such were some of you. At one time you were that way, but you became Christians. You were washed. And because of that, God sanctified and justified you. You transformed your lives. They chose to transform. See, if we ever needed proof that God can accomplish his purposes in spite of our weaknesses, it is generously supplied in Matthew's genealogy. Again, so the first lesson we want to notice here is that Matthew lets us know that in Christ, 
Our past does not dictate our future, and Rahab teaches us that very well here in uh, the first point. The second point we want to notice is that she's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. And Hebrews 11 is probably one of the more popular uh, chapters within the Bible. We often refer to it as the Hall of Faith. You see, over and over again, the Bible writer here is listing those in the Old Testament who, by faith, did such and such. And by faith, they did this. And by faith, they did that. Well, what is faith? You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, if you're there with me as well, he gives us a definition uh, there in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, where the writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He says, faith is the assurance. It's the substance. It's the confidence that you have, the realization that you have in the things that you hope for. And also it's the conviction. It's the, the proof or the evidence of things not seen. You know, biblical faith is never a leap in the dark. It's never wishful thinking, but it's never a mental acknowledgement. You know, James said in James chapter 2, verse 19, that even the devils believe right, that Jesus is the Son of God. It's faith, having faith is never a mere acknowledgement, but it's, it's not covering all the bases as some individuals might want to do. It's not a feeling of one's heart. You know, Jeremiah says that the heart is wicked. It can't be trusted. But, but faith is always adequate evidence that warrants our beliefs. And a good way to remember it is that it's a unique blend of these three things. Belief, trust, and obedience. You know, that's what biblical faith is. If we have all three of those, we have biblical faith. It's grounded in the testimony of creation. You know, we can look outside. Romans 1 verse 20 says we can see his invisible attributes in the world. But it's also grounded in the testimony of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says all Scripture is inspired by God. And how important is faith? You know, again, the Hebrews writer in verse 6 of chapter 11 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 24, uh, that, that if, if we don't believe in him, that we will die in our sin. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we are justified by faith. Faith is extremely important. Well, again, notice what the Hebrews writer says in the hall of faith about Rahab in verse 31. He says, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And again, we want to notice this evidence-based faith that, that Rahab had. Again, she had that belief. You know, she said that uh, she re recalls hearing the testimony of these individuals that, you know, some 40 years ago the, that the, the Red Sea was dried up as they were running away from the Egyptians and they escaped. And, and we heard the things that you did to the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og. And again, her faith, her belief was based on this testimony. And she says, because of that, our hearts melted. Uh, we no longer had courage to go on. And then we can notice her trust. Because in Joshua, back in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, notice what she says here. She says, When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She says, he is God. 
Remember, she, she's coming from a pagan society, a polytheistic society, which would have believed in many different gods. But she, she doesn't say that he is great among the gods, but he, she says that he is God. She is trusting that this is the God, the one true and living God. And she says, I have dealt kindly with you. Now I'm trusting that you're going to deal kindly with me by faith. And then she acts upon that with her obedience. She was told to tie this cord of scarlet, a thread in the window, stay in the home. Uh, Your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters do not leave when we come back and you will be safe during that battle. And if, if she and any of her household would have stepped outside that door, they would not have survived. But by faith, she did these things. She, she believed uh, in the accounts. She, she trusted uh, that it was true, and she obeyed. And so Rahab went from the house of shame to God's hall of fame. You know, Paul said in Romans ten seventeen, our faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right? Our faith, our belief, our trust, our obedience. You know, she, again, she reasoned with the evidence and she logically came to the conclusion that he is the God of the universe. And, and we do the same thing today. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 7 that we walk by faith, not by sight. You know, neither one, no one here has seen God, but we believe that he is. And we walk by faith, not by sight. And so the second lesson we want to learn again here this evening from Rahab is that the Hebrew writer lets us know that we may at one time have been disobedient, but through faith we can be counted with the obedient. And the last point we want to notice here that again, Rahab is brought up one more time in the New Testament, this time in James chapter two, uh, verse 25. James here is writing uh, about faith and works. And he says that faith without works, it it makes no sense. It's incoherent, he says. Uh, In verses 14 through 17, notice James says, again in chapter two, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister without, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And then he continues on through that chapter and gives a couple of illustrations. First, uh, with Abraham. But then he's going to bring up Rahab the harlot there in verse 25. Notice in verse 24, he says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so James is telling us that you know, Rahab's faith was active. It was active and it brought her to do these great works. Her saving faith was revealed in her works when she received the messengers and she sent them out the other way. Again, faith, as we mentioned before, is not a mere mental assent or acknowledgement of Jesus. You know, a lot of people uh, live by uh, the the faith alone, uh, practice and religion, that all you need to do is have faith. All you need to do is acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and, and you'll be fine. But, you know, the only time in the Bible that that phrase faith alone is found is here in James chapter 2, verse 24. But it says that we are not saved by faith alone. Again, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And a lot of times they'll want to make the argument that, you know, that, that, that faith is, is a, or excuse me, that baptism is a work. And so we can't be saved by works. But Matthew, or excuse me, Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 29, 
this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. You know, Jesus himself said that, that belief is a work. Again, not a work of merit, but a saving faith producing good works. You know, in Matthew chapter 25, I uh, remember when Jesus is describing the judgment day and he says uh, to those that, you know, that, that he's going to line up the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And, and he says that, you know, uh, you know, I came to you and I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you brought me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and, and you helped me. I was in prison and you visited me. We noticed uh, when, when Jesus gives those things, uh, and then when he gives the, the negative to those who did not do those things, he said those uh, individuals who did not know, do those things were meant for the eternal fire, uh, the, as he's describing uh, the great judgment day. And notice he's not talking about the life that they lived in, in the sins that they were committing, but that they weren't doing these great works. Again, Rahab was not the only one in Jericho who believed the same report. It tells us there in Joshua chapter 2 that all of them believed in that report. They, they all melted. They were all scared. But she was the only one that took action in that account. The rest of the citizens of Jericho did not escape the destruction. They were utterly destroyed. And so as we uh, see here, the third lesson of Rahab that we notice in the New Testament, uh, that James lets us know that faith without works is a dead faith. And she, uh, of course, did not have that sort of faith. Though, so, uh, through a faithful response to God, as we uh, are concluding this lesson this evening about Rahab the harlot, uh, we notice that anyone can move beyond their past and receive the grace of God. Again, Rahab's name is recorded in the genealogy of Jesus and with the great heroes of faith. And likewise, our names uh, this evening as well can be written in heaven in the book of life. For Rahab, salvation was not based on her character, but upon her response to the goodness of God. And again, she acted in faith and her life was spared. And that scarlet thread uh, that, that we read about in Joshua chapter 2, a symbol of redemption pointing to the blood of Christ. Right? The blood of Christ that uh, frees us from our sins, that washes away our sins. This evening, as we offer the invitation, if you're here this evening with us and not a child of God and you have not contacted the blood of Christ through being immersed in water, we would love the opportunity to help you this evening to do that for you, to help you become a Christian and begin your walk with Christ. Or this evening, if you're here with us and you're a Christian, but maybe you have been struggling in this life, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness, you need to ask for prayers. Again, what better place and time to do that in front of your brethren uh, this evening as together we stand and sing the song of invitation.